Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Still, yes, still, Hebrews chapter 11, still, verse 32. What more shall we say? For the time would fail me to tell. And that's true, right? It would have failed him to tell and write it all out, all these stories. But it hasn't failed us because we just keep plugging away. We've learned about Gideon, Barak, Samson. Today, Jephthah. Yikes. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, famous American poet from the 19th century, penned a little poem. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. Just a simple little ditty. Why did it resonate? And why do some of you still know it and you're quoting it even today? Probably because it is an accurate description, depiction of the human experience. Anyone who has a cute little daughter, newborn ones even, hmm? granddaughters, you can testify. They can be adoring little angels and they can be wicked little devils, depending on the mood. And I didn't get any amens on that because uh, there's a few, right? Is that not true? Growing up in Canada, much of the history was learning about the colonialists and those who settled the, well, Canada, but also North America. The Spanish, the French, the English got over here, state claims on the land and for the empires back in Europe. And we studied about them and they were depicted as brave explorers, hardy people who endured conditions to discover the new world. They were part of our heritage and they illustrated our pioneering spirits, people who we who could suffer and endure and overcome, build something new, carve something out of nothing. And as school children, we would go to those heritage settlements and we would see that they had built. But lately, there has been fierce criticisms of those early explorers and settlers. Christopher Columbus once was an admired historical figure. He's now a hated villain. European colonialists are now seen as Horrible invaders, people who spread disease and tyrant, uh, tyranny wherever they went, destroying the lives of the peaceful indigenous populations. And I'd say of these two polar opposite narratives, they are both right in some way and they are also inaccurate in other ways. Our heroes from history are never as noble as they are made out to be, nor were our villains as uniquely vile and exclusively evil as we make them out to be. Those villains, those evil people from history, they don't reflect us at all. They're outliers. Those heroes, those admirable people, they were completely pure and righteous and corruptible and virtuous. That's who we are. And the reality is, people are both and. We can learn and excel and do wonderful things, and we can also be debased and immoral. The same person who shows love can show hate. The same person can be kind and can be cruel. The same person can have faith and also be disobedience. Would that be true of you and I? I can't speak for you, but I will admit that that is true of me. I cannot, I have not, 
ever casted myself as a pious individual. I've been permitted to maintain this position of pastor at this church for over 16 years now, all the while reminding you that I am a flawed person. If you accept me as a spiritual leader, please do so with the understanding that I am far from perfect. I am a sinner, but I am saved by amazing grace. Well, if you agree with that for yourself, say amen. amen. Since we've all expressed our amens, it ought to come as no surprise to us that the people of the Bible, likewise, could be examples of both faith and failure. And as we study the Bible, we observe many times God's word does not hide the sins of the Bible characters. We learn about Abraham's faith and his failures, Noah, David, Solomon. Somehow we learn about who we are and who God is through this telling of these stories of these people's lives. Just like last week, Samson. Right? Very conflicted from strength to weakness, back to strength. He ended on a high note, so it was easy to celebrate him. Today, we're going to look at Jephthah. <sighs> this is one of the hardest Bible stories to tell. Normally, when you study the book of Judges, you can preach the context of the historical setting at that time, and you can just say, you know, there is a whole bunch of mess, and those are all examples of what not to do. But then we have this really awkward situation today, something I can't skirt around if I'm going to maintain a consistent biblical hermeneutic. Jephthah is in the Hebrews chapter 11 by faith chapter. So let me tell you the story and then we'll try to figure out how the heck he got into the by faith chapter. Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Judges 11, verse 1, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah, Gilead's wife, bore sons, and when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. The worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. It came to pass after some time, the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So it was when the people of Ammon made war with Israel that the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, come, be our commander that you could fight against the people of Ammon. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Wait, what? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, well, that's why we're turned against you. We turn to you now that you will, I lost my spot, that you will go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. All right. What's the first thing we learn about Jephthah? Chapter, one, ver chapter 11, verse 1. Jephthah is a mighty man of valor. Oh, cool. A strong leader. And in the next sentence, he's a son of a prostitute. Yeah. Verse 2. Gilead's uh, first wife bore sons, and these wife's sons grew up, and they drove him out and said, you have no inheritance with our father's house. You are the son of a whore, another woman. 
Perhaps Jephthah, I was thinking, maybe he was the firstborn, which would have given him legally the, the be the uh, son of the inheritance, heir to the, heir to the birthright. But his brothers reject him and they force him out of the family. Back in this tribe-dominated society, one's family and tribe is essential to one's identity. Jephthah's father, Gilead, is of the tribe of Manassas. So Gilead had land that he inherited from when his tribe conquered the promised land. This was where Jephthah was from. These are the people who raised him. It's not his fault that his mother was a harlot. That's on his dad. But once his dad passes, the sons born from Gilead's legitimate wife, they reject him and they make him pay for his father's sins. This really boils down to, I think, some resentment and greed, right? They don't have to share the land with him. They don't have to share any of the, the inheritance with him. And they just boot him out. Not a great start in life for poor Jephthah. But despite being driven away from his people, he is a leader and a band of likewise despised, rejected, worthless men are following him. Worthless is the Hebrew word rake. It means empty, idle, or worthless. We hear worthless, we tend to think maybe some shady dudes who are untrustworthy. But worthless can also simply be translated poor. There's no question that Poverty, many times, is affiliated with people who are seen as untrustworthy. Poor people may be desperate enough to steal from you. Or maybe they're poor because they've made a lot of unwise choices which have resulted in their situation. Maybe they broke the law in their past, in their, past, in their youth, and that just keeps record, keeps haunting them, and plagues them and limits their options. There is a stigma, isn't there, with the poor. Now, I grew up poor but it wasn't because my parents were lazy or unwise or shady. Lots of people have integrity and great work ethic who are poor. Like Jephthah, we are often born into circumstances that are no fault of our own. Most of the world's population, since the dawn of humanity, are the working poor. The rich, noble, royalty, the bourgeoisie, they are the minority. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he was poor. His people were oppressed, and his ministry was primarily to poor, worthless people. When we talk about serving the Lord, providing ministry, if you're scratching your head trying to figure out, well, you know, who, who can I serve, or how do, you, how do you minister to people? Well, the answer is poor, weak, needy people, people who can give you little in return. Your work, you work and you go nine to five, you work for people who can pay you money. But ministry is often generally to people who are empty and void of resources. So, you know, you look around and first thing is, you know, kids, right? they got nothing. They just, you know, crap their pants and they expect you to clean it up, right? Because they can't do it for themselves. So you got kiddos, teenagers, they don't do that so much usually, um, the sick, Infirmed, maybe people who are older and have lost their strength and their strength is failing them. They need ministry. Uh, often victims of greedy, abusive, unscrupulous people. They need a hand and a help, don't they, Jennifer? We do a lot of that around here. Um, people who have made unwise choices and are suffering the painful consequences. Uh, now they're trying to get straightened out and they, they, need, they need some groups and support groups for them. We have those. People are stressed out, overwhelmed with dealing with the chaos that life keeps throwing at them. That's a mental exhaustion there. We help people with that. And then also people who understand that information given to us from our divine creator for our benefit, that would be worth having. And 
That would be like teaching ministry. So I think I just accurately summed up all that we're doing around here at Faith Bible Church. Point being, we are all at different stages of being empty and poor, and we all have needs. These are the kinds of people who gravitate to an outcast like Jephthah. After all, he's not the only one who's been driven out of his community for whatever the reason. And even though his family rejects him, that does not change the fact that he is also a mighty man of valor. And that's something for us to personally think about. We all suffer rejection in life. Maybe like Jephthah, it's family, or maybe it's a, as a child, it was a peer group, or you're bullied by somebody, or maybe we're sitting there with a broken relationship that we're now dealing with. Maybe it's something we tried out for and we didn't make the cut, or we applied for a, a school, or we applied for a job position. We auditioned and people say, yeah, you're not what we're looking for. Maybe in sixth grade, you asked someone to the Valentine's banquet and they said, ew, no. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, of course. <laughs> we all deal with rejection at some point. But it doesn't have to define you. It does not have to be the totality of how you see yourself a reject. Jephthah's rejected by his family and he's a mighty man of valor. The point is, is you can develop yourself you can fail in one endeavor, but you can learn, grow, excel in something else. And you may find the people who at one time rejected you come back around and they're much more interested and you're much more attractive to them because you have grown and developed into something they now need and want. But I think one of the harmful messages being told nowadays to people is, Everyone ought to be pleased with themselves and accepted for who they are, no matter what. Growth and development, that's not required. You're beautiful and perfect, just the way you are. Oh, that's not really honest now, is it? Jephthah, you're the son of a harlot. Is that really an admirable thing? No, it's not. His brothers don't respect him. Immoral behavior is something that's not respectable. Jephthah's existence is a reminder of their father's sinful activities and the violation of God's laws. Nothing Jephthah can do can change any of that, but guess what he can do? He can develop some qualities that are respectable, like be a strong leader and a warrior. Because when you're being oppressed by a hostile army, all of a sudden, mighty men of valor who are leading their own private armies, they're not seen as worthless anymore. They're all of a sudden in high demand, very valuable. So do not roll over and quit just because someone at some point in time rejected you. Learn, grow, develop. You can be someone who others find very important. Verse 4, came to pass at that time the people of Ammon made war against Israel. So here we got the Ammonites oppressing Israel. Oh, good grief, the Ammonites. Ugh. Now we got to talk about another really awkward Bible story. Yay! Two cringe stories for the price of one. If you are visiting today and you're not familiar with the Bible, you're think, going to think, this guy is crazy and why are all these people listening to him? But if you come back after this sermon, chances are you really are interested in learning the Bible. Okay, bear with me. The people of Ammon are the descendants of Lot, According to the book of Genesis, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, was dragged out of the region of Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed those cities. The people of those cities were so perverted, God said, you're done. 
Lot and his two daughters escaped. So they're up in the hills, dwelling in a cave. And Lot's daughters thought the entire world has been destroyed and we got to repopulate the earth now. And the only guy around is dear old dad. So they get him drunk and they slept with him and they each got pregnant, giving birth to two sons. One son was named Moab and the other was named Ammon. And these two fellas were the beginning of the Moabites and the Ammonite people who are distant relatives to the Israelite people. These nations do not reside in the promised land, but they lived on the borders. So they're like the Canadians and the Mexicans, eh? That's kind of how we view that as Americans. God told Israel, leave those guys alone. Uh, when they went into the promised land, they said, you're not to touch those guys, um, but don't commingle with them either. They worship false gods. They're, we're always hostile to Israel. And on occasions they invaded, such as the case here in Judges chapter 11. So there's you go, the Ammonites and another gross story. So it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tope. And they said to Jephthah, come be our commander that you can fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to the elders, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why are you coming now that you're in distress? And uh, the funny thing here is, is they don't even deny that. Oh, like, oh yeah, that's, that's true. But see, now we need you, right? That's why we've turned again now that you can fight against the Ammonites and be our head uh, over all of Gilead, uh, Gilead. So Jephthah makes him an offer. Well, if you bring me back and the Lord delivers Ammon into my hand, I get to be the chief. I get to be the commander. And they agreed because they really do need him. So once again, if you are... are want to be seen as acceptable to people, make yourself useful, interesting, and develop some skills. Uh, you're not perfect just the way you are, but you know you can grow, as did Jephthah. So now Jephthah, he's the leader, verse 11, verse 12. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon saying, why do you have, what do you have against me that you've come up to fight against me and my land? And the king of Ammon answered the message to Jephthah because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Aran as far as Jabok, Jabok and to Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peacefully. The Ammonites claim that they are attacking because Israel has taken their land. Give us the land and we'll give you peace. That's the offer. So let me summarize the next 14 verses instead of reading it all. Jephthah then gives them a history lesson explaining how that is, in fact, false. Israel, when they entered the promised land, took what belonged to the, the uh, Amorites and the Canaanites. God had told them not to touch the Ammonites' land, and they did not take any of their land. But the Ammonites, they are not interested in these facts. After the end of this big talk, they simply want to fight. The Ammonites believe they ought to have the land, and when someone believes something, facts really don't matter too much. And what is wild is that is exactly the same thing that's happening with Israel today, right? Even now, they keep getting these offers, uh, just like it was all the way back in Judges. The people threaten Israel with war, and they say, give us land, and we'll give you peace. But you know what happens every time Israel gives up some territory? What happens? They never get peace, right? Because they're hostile neighbors, the Palestinians, the Palestinians, uh, uh, the Syrians, the Iranians, they believe Israel should not exist. They believe they shouldn't have any of the land, but the facts are, just like Jephthah pointed out here in verse 21, if you turn to verse 21, 
Jephthah pointed out to them, the Lord God of Israel delivered Shihon and all these people into the hand of Israel and defeated them. Israel gained possession of land from the Amorites who inhabited the country. The fact is God gave them this land. God sent them in there and God gave them to them. Now, many people will declare, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. You know, okay, that's fine. You can believe what you want, but here's the thing. The same land that God gave the nation of Israel back in 1500 BC, they're still sitting on it today. That's a fact. Now, lots of people hate that fact, and there's lots of nations that want to change that fact, but there Israel sits on the land that the God of the Bible swore an oath to Abraham that would be theirs. What do you do with facts that you don't like? Deny them? Try to change them? Jephthah's discussion with the Ammonites is uh, like trying to rebuttal people on social media. You ever done that? You ever tried to debate somebody on social media? You try to show them some scientific facts. You try defining terms accurately. You try to explain the falsehoods that they've accepted as truth, expose their circular reasoning, their inconsistent logic, give them a history, biology, theology lesson to them, and they just dismiss all your evidence and call you names. And then you conclude these people, they don't really care about facts, they just wanna, they wanna fight. Verse 28, 29, that's what we see here. The king of the people of Mon did not heed the words of Jephthah, he just wants to fight. The spirit of the Lord, verse 29, comes on Jephthah, he passes through Gilead and Manasseh and passes through Mitzpah of Gilead. From Mitzpah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you'll deliver the people of Ammon into my hand, then it will be whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me. Then when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, so surely be the Lord's and I will offer it as a burnt offering. All right, so verse 29, the spirit of the Lord is with Jephthah and he's going out to battle and he makes this vow with God and he's gonna be, it's gonna be a great fight. Verse 32, Jephthah advances towards the people of Ammon to fight them and the Lord delivered them into his hand and he defeated them from Aroer as far as Minneth, 12, 20 cities. And there was a great slaughter. The people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So it's a great victory. This is awesome, yay. Mighty man of valor, full of the spirit of God. Verse 34, yikes. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when it came to pass, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, alas, my daughter, you brought me low. You are among those who trouble me for I have given my word to the Lord and I can't go back on it. She said, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do, do to, to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you and your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months, she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with which he had vowed she knew no man. See why this is one of the hardest Bible stories to tell? And how is this guy in the by faith chapter? 
well, I guess uh, God was impressed with his devotion to his vows since he followed through and sacrificed his daughters a burnt offering. That, that was an act of faith? No, it wasn't an act of faith. Because Deuteronomy, the book, of, the, the book of Deuteronomy, the laws of Moses, when the Lord your God cuts off from you the nations which you are going to dispossess and you dispossess them and live in their land, be careful that you do not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from your presence and you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I may do likewise. You shall not behave this way to the Lord your, towards the Lord your God because every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God commanded specifically, don't do that. That's a violation, clear violation of his law. And yet, the law of God also states regarding vows, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be a sin, would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Once again, Numbers 30, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes a note to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So the law of God is going to be broken either way. Either way. Now, some people have studied this text and said, well, he didn't actually sacrifice her. He decided to dedicate her to the service of the Lord, sort of like Hannah, Samuel's mom did. And Samuel had to go live at the tabernacle and serve the Lord the rest of his life. And that's what she had to do. And it was sad because she is his only child. Uh, and now she has to live a life of celibacy. And that meant Jephthah would never have any grandchildren since that's his only child. And people point to that the, how the text emphasizes they bewailed her virginity. They were bewailing her virginity, not so much her death. She remains a virgin and she never becomes what women in this culture desire above all else, which is to be a mother and this is definitely a more palatable interpretation. But all of that about never being a mother would also be true if she was a burnt sacrifice. Jephthah's line would be over. She never would have gotten the greatest desire of having any children. If she dies, he loses his entire family. So the observation, the detail of mourning her virginity is not ironclad evidence that she was dedicated for service and not sacrificed. It's compelling, but it's not ironclad. And the really hard one to get around is the text does not say anything about sending her away to serve the Lord the rest of her life. That option is not presented in this narrative. What's hard to get around is the literal words written in Judges chapter 11, verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hand, then it will be that whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up a burnt offering. And verse 39, and it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with which he had vowed. I wish it straight up said, Jephthah dedicated his daughter to the Lord for service, but... It doesn't say that. As horrible as it is to imagine, I don't think there's any way that we can completely and definitively conclude he didn't sacrifice his daughter. 
As I stated in the beginning, normally when you study the book of Judges, you can preach it from the context of the historical setting and say, there is a whole bunch of mess going on here, and it's an example of what not to do. But we have this really awkward situation where Jephthah is in the by faith chapter. How can he sacrifice his daughter and still be in the by faith chapter? I do see uh, the parallel of how God the Father sacrificed his son, but that's not really palatable or, you know, a great interpretation because Scripture does not state that Jephthah's daughter is a type of Christ. Unlike Moses, uh, Abraham's situation where God told him to sacrifice his son, Jephthah was never commanded to do this, nor was there any divine intervention that recorded that stopped it like it happened with Abraham. No, I think Jephthah is a tragic character. Not a villain, but certainly not a perfect hero either. This guy's very flawed. He is in the by faith chapter because of his faith to trust the Lord to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. As he said in verse number nine, if the Lord gives me the victory, see, he only thought I could win this battle if the Lord will win it on my behalf. He does not think it's possible without the Lord, which is why he makes this desperate vow. So his dependence on the Lord is admirable, but his misapplication of the law of God is tragic. And I think that that is something we have to take a long, hard look at. And if I just said, well, Jephthah's a really hard Bible story to tell, let's just skip over that one, we would miss the opportunity to dig into a very hard lesson. And it's this. The misapplication of the word of God is very destructive and can lead to tragedy but it doesn't mean you're void of faith. So many people are staunchly entrenched in their religious upbringings. They are devout and zealous, dedicated to their churches, their denominations, and their religious heritage. However, many of these churches misapply the word of God. They create unbiblical, ungodly demands for their adherence to a bye-bye, and many times the children brought up in these religious upbringings suffer horribly. And I have seen many of my friends relationally with their parents walk away from their families and even walk away from the Lord because of the man-made rules that their parents' religion was imposing upon them. False teachings, unbiblical religious practices breed confusion and distrust in people. And once someone has been spiritually abused, it's so very hard to rebuild trust in God and trust in a church. My gosh, it's almost like traumatic for people to walk back into church when they've gone through some system like that. And just, it's so much anger, so much emotion and brokenness is there. They're angry at their parents for promoting and permitting that to happen to them, and they're angry at God. But just like Jephthah's vow, God had nothing to do with that. God never told him to do it, and God didn't ask him to do it. That was Jephthah's foolishness not God's requirement. Here's the thing, folks. None of your pastors are perfect. None in the past, and certainly not this guy right here. None of our parents are perfect either. My folks, 19 years old, when they started our family, how well equipped were you for that? Not really well equipped at all, right? We are all raised up in broken environments by imperfect people, but they were not the totality of evil either. The same person who loves can hate. The same person who can be kind can be cruel. The same person who has faith can also be disobedient. 
So what we have to do is we, we have to use this knowledge to stop reacting emotionally and rejecting God altogether or feeling obligated to abide by some unbiblical traditions of men. We do not have to be trapped by decisions of the past. Instead, we can evaluate, celebrate the faith, the good things we experienced and learned, but also identify the mistakes, the falsehoods, and not repeat them. And no matter where we are on our faith journey, imperfection does not equal unfaithfulness. Write that one down. Imperfection does not equal unfaithfulness. After all, here's tragic Jephthah. He makes the worst blunder. He destroys his family, and he's still in the by-faith chapter. So my conclusion is, imperfection does not equal unfaithfulness. Misguided faith still can be faith. So maybe you're here today, and you've made horrible mistakes. That does not disqualify you from coming to God in faith, because nobody is saved by good deeds. Who wrote that? Remember the Apostle Paul? He said, not by works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. For by grace, you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. That is a gift from God, not works, lest any man should boast. Jephthah shows us a tragic figure, one who destroyed his family, but his actions did not cancel out his faith. Praise God that our stupidity and misguided zeal does not cancel out our faith either. God does not reject us, and we ought not to reject others. But let's learn from our mistakes. Let's develop. Let's grow and not continue a cycle of tragedy. How can you learn and grow? Well, I think kind of where this service started, right? With the folks coming up here to talk about small groups, getting in community, studying the word of God, having some small groups, getting some counseling. We offer counseling. We offer support groups to help people overcome habits, hangups, and hurts. Get into the word of God and know it well. Why did Jephthah focus on the law saying, keep your vows, but miss the one that expressly said, don't sacrifice your children? I don't know. Probably because there's a whole lot of laws in there and he needed help keeping them all straight. He needed someone to help him figure out how to apply them properly to his life. And that's true of all of us. We need to keep studying and learning because there's so much to figure out and misapplying it can be tragic. It can be so tragic. So that's my hope and challenge for all of us today that we will continue on to study and ask hard questions, dig into the word of God and look for the proper answers. So that's what we want to do, folks. We want to keep on learning and growing together. And if you have any questions after that one, by all means, write them all down and come see me because that was, that was a challenging one to preach. Let's thank him, shall we? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the God of promise and that you have made the way to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that it is not by our own works that our failures, as horrible, as misguided, as tragic as they can be, they do not destroy us in our faith, that we can turn to you and that we can receive hope and help and healing and salvation. And we pray that somebody here today would hear this message and understand that you love them, that you died for them, that you've got a whole lot more things that you want to reveal to them and you've got a plan for their life. 
And Lord, we pray for all of us who have made these stupid mistakes and we've hurt our children and our grandchildren, we've hurt our families, that we've been hurt by our families, Lord, that you would restore us, that you would give us uh, forgiving hearts, that you would give us a chance to do it right and do it better. And we pray for victories to be won in Jesus' name.